If you have a Bible, why don't you open it to Luke chapter 10? As you go there, I want you to think with me a little bit about um, the fact that you can learn to do all kinds of things, right? But, but it, that often, the learning only gets you so far. Like the study only gets you so far. Eventually, you have to try it, right? Any of you kids, did you learn how to dive into the water this summer or do a flip into the water this summer? None of you. I've already lost you. Okay, great. You can be told, here's the, here's the etiquette or here's the form you should use, but eventually you've just got to belly flop and then be like, ooh, i got to do it a bit different. You know, you have to just do it. You have to apply it. It's the same with driving a car. As nervous as that makes the rest of us, the point comes when you just have to get behind the wheel as a new driver and learn how to drive. It's the same with cooking a meal. Listen, I know a lot of you watch the cooking shows. That's great. But eventually you have to like make a delicious meal, right? You can watch, oh, that looks amazing, and you go to the kitchen. Eventually, you have to try it, burn it, realize, you know, whatever. You have to just do it. I, 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 um, same with throwing a ball. I, I helped coach my son's baseball team this past spring, and every practice, we'd just line up the kids in pairs and get them throwing the ball together, and we'd show them the form, the mechanics, and then a couple of the kids would just like do their own thing. And it's, oh, okay, well, let's do this again and show them the mechanics. And they just have to start throwing the ball. And you kind of tweak it as you go. It's the same with hitting. You, here's where you stand, eye on the ball, but eventually you just have to take some cracks at it. It's the same with catching any sort of ball while we're at it, right? Parents, you know this. You have your, you know, your, your toddler child and you set up their hands like this. Okay, hold your hands like this. I'm going to throw you the ball. You grab it and then you throw them the ball, hits them in the chest, drops to the ground, right? Okay, let's just keep working on that. And eventually they just start to do it. Open heart surgery. <laughs> like eventually you just have to do it, you know, scary as that is. But you, you, lots of learning, lots of learning ahead of it, right? Observing, maybe participating. I don't know how that stuff works. But eventually... The surgeon's like, I just did my first open heart surgery, right? That day has to happen for that surgeon. The same with preaching, right? Preaching is like, you can learn, you can sit in a class and learn about preaching all day long, but eventually you just have, we just call it, you got to get reps, right? So that's why we do our preaching lab, for example. We believe that there are gifted teachers among us who just need to get some reps. They, they need to exercise that gift, get critiqued a little bit, and tweak the mannerisms they do that are really uh, distracting to everybody and all of that kind of stuff. Like, you just have to get the opportunity to do it once you've learned about it. So it is... That was a little pitch for the preaching lab, by the way. Jump into that, okay? It's coming. So it is with the Christian faith. It's one thing to learn a lot about Jesus. It's another to go as a sent one into the world to tell others about Jesus, and that's precisely what Christians are. They're little Christs who represent him everywhere they go. It's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. See, to be a follower of Jesus means that you are one who helps others follow Jesus. And that's precisely what Jesus does in our text in Luke 10 this morning. He thrusts. He sends out. There's actually some real power in that word. Like he's, he's pushing them forward. Okay, you've sat at my feet a lot. Out you go. Like, and he's just sending them out. Let's look at the text. We're just going to take it a kind of a verse or two at a time and just discuss what it means to be involved in making 
disciples. Verse 1, after the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. After this is really in in chapter 9, Jesus has sent out the 12 apostles, like the, the close 12 disciples of his, but now it tells us that he sends out 72 others. This is significant for us. This shows us that the mission of making disciples involves every follower of Jesus. It reveals that the mission of God is not confined to a select few, but it's for everybody. He'd already sent out the 12. Now he goes to another 72 disciples and sends them out. This first verse is significant for another reason, and it's that this 72, or in some of your translations of the Bible, it might say 70. This number is likely a reference to Genesis chapter 10, where two different numbers were being used. In the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was uh, 70, I believe, and in the Hebrew translation, it was 72. And so for all of these reasons, there's this difference. But what's happening in Genesis chapter 10 was it was a list of every known nation in the world at that time. And here Jesus is sending out the 70 or the 72, which is symbolic of the significance for the nations of the world. Right, Jesus goes on to give it the Great Commission, telling them to go to all the nations. So what's significant here is the mission of making disciples involves every follower of Jesus, and it involves everywhere. Think with me about who would have been in that group of 72. Right? Like, literally, Jesus is grabbing. So you're a bunch of disciples of Jesus. I grab 72 of you, and out you go. Like, some of you would be shy, uh, and you're going out now, and you're, you're shy. Well, Timothy was a shy man. Timothy in the New Testament, he was timid by temperament. He was shy. He was an introvert. That's why in Second Timothy, this letter the Apostle Paul writes, he's like, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, Timothy, but of power and love and discipline, so get on with it. He was shy, and yet what he was saying is God will meet you in the power he provides even in the midst of your shyness. Some of the 72 were likely very young. The prophet Jeremiah was. He said in Jeremiah 1, I am only a youth. Why would you send me? And God responds, to whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid. He was young. God had used that. Some of us, 72, like these disciples Jesus sent out, would just plain not be articulate not be articulate. Well, neither was Moses. And so in Exodus chapter 4, he's making excuses to God, like, why do you want to use me? I, I literally stutter and fumble over my words, and you want to send me to, to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world? And God responds, who made your mouth? I'll be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you will speak. He can work with us if we're shy. He can work with us if we're timid. He can work with us if we're young. He can work with us if we're not articulate. See, all disciples of Jesus are sent ones, and the destination is everywhere. How does that work itself out for us as followers of Jesus? It means that God's placed us where he has, in our schools, at our workplace, with the family we have, the friends we have, the neighborhood we are in. 
We're sent ones. We're followers of Jesus, called out to help others follow Jesus. This works itself out corporately in that we want to be a sending church who support those who are compelled and commissioned to serve as missionaries. We want to be an equipping church who raise up, call out, and commission pastors for vocational ministry. More than anything, we want to be a church together on mission, recognizing it's not just for the 12, the missionaries and the pastors, maybe we could say in our context, it's for the 72. It's for all of the disciples. All of this leads us to the second aspect involved in discipleship we see in our text this morning, and it's actually the first instruction in all of this as he's sending them out that Jesus gives. The first instruction is this, pray. Look at verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the second thing we would want to say is the mission of making disciples involves prayer. The staff of our church, our alarms go off at 10.02. Now, don't worry, that doesn't mean we get up at 10.02. Our alarms go off at 10.02, and we give ourselves at that time to pray, to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers, because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. See, we, we pray at 10.02 because of Luke 10, verse 2. And what's being said in it is that there's a huge opportunity. Do you see what's being said in verse 2 that's a huge opportunity? The harvest is plentiful. I don't know if it seems that way to you as you look out at your neighborhood and your friends and your family and your coworkers that the harvest is plentiful, but Jesus tells us that it is. We might look and be like, there's no chance they'd come to Christ. There's no chance they'd receive and believe the gospel. But we're told in the Scriptures, the harvest is plentiful. And then he tells us what the problem actually is. The problem is that there are too few to do the task. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So then in the midst of this issue, this problem, he gives an instruction. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. That's so encouraging. What it's telling us there is that he is the sovereign Lord of the harvest. He is in control, and ultimately, he will send out laborers. So what we've learned so far is that disciples go, and as they do, they are to pray. They are to pray. The book we're reading as a staff this year, I don't know if they know it yet, we'll start it next week, is E.M. Bounds' old book called Power Through Prayer. Listen to what he says. The men who have most fully illustrated Christ in their character and have most powerfully affected the world for him have been men who spent so much time with God as to make it a notable feature of their lives. Charles Simeon, you may have heard of Simeon Trust. Charles Simeon devoted the hours from four till eight in the morning to God. Mr. Wesley, that's John Wesley, spent two hours daily in prayer. He began at four in the morning. Of him, one who knew him well wrote, he thought prayer to be more his business than anything else. And I have seen him come out of his closet with a serenity of face next to shining. John Fletcher, who was a contemporary of John Wesley, it says, stained the walls of his room by the breath of his prayers. Now, that seems a little bit weird, but sounds like it was pretty intense. Sometimes he would pray all night, always, frequently, and with great earnestness. His whole life was a life of prayer. I would not rise from my seat, he said, without lifting my heart to God. 
his greeting to a friend was always, do I meet you praying? I, I, I think I actually might start doing this. Like when I see my friend coming towards me, I'm like, are you praying right now? Like that's how he would say hello. You praying, right? Like that's, that, he was so a man of prayer that he just assumed as his friends were walking to him, they must be praying right now. I'm always praying. Awesome. Martin Luther, Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. He's saying, if I do not put two hours of prayer in in the morning, the devil wins the day. But because of all the work I have to do for the glory of God, for the good of his church in each day, I've got to give three so that there's actually profit. Now, you hear all that, and you're like, that sounds unattainable, except for four of you, and bless your hearts. But you can start with a few minutes of prayer every day. To the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, for the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. In the midst of this uh, multicolored guy, I don't know what color you got, I got pink. Um, and uh, there is a section in here that's just templates to pray. We just want to give you little, little helps. You might feel like your prayer life is stagnant. You might feel like you're praying in circles and there's no power in it. There's no joy in it. It's is such a duty. Just in, invite you to look at the, the prayer sections in here and pick a different template and walk it through. Just start with a few minutes of prayer a day and pray to the Lord of the harvest. There was this small community that gave themselves to prayer and God used it to change the world. They're the Moravians. There was this guy, kids, have you heard a better name than this? Count Zinzendorf. Nikolaus von Zinzendorf. Sounds like he's like the villain in like a Thor movie or something. But he was like the sweetest Christian man. He was very prominent in Germany. He had a prominent position in the courts and those kinds of things. And he had estates and all that kind of stuff. And in 1722, this Moravian man showed up at Count Zinzendorf's estate in Germany and asked if he might allow oppressed Moravian refugees shelter on his land. And he felt a real kindred affection to them, and they had a shared and common faith. And so this group of Moravian uh, refugees settled on his land, and this little village start to be, started to be built. The settlement became known as Herrenhut, which means in German, on the watch for the Lord. And by 1725, there were 90 people settled, and this little village was starting to be built on Zinzendorf's property. Then pietist Lutherans, former Catholics, Reformed, and Anabaptists joined the new community, and by 1726, the population of Zinzendorf's land was 300. Well, around that time, trouble came. The Moravians and the Lutherans disagreed over Sunday liturgy, I can't imagine. There were language difficulties and economic pressures. All of these things were happening, but Zinzendorf was so, so committed to praying through the, 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 the issues that were happening and laboring through. He gave himself to praying and laboring for revival among this little group. 
He moved his family from their grand estate into the little village, and he went door to door, opening the scriptures with everyone and striving for unity, praying fervently, laboring with everything he had that revival would come. And the next year, in 1725, the Moravian community commenced an around-the-clock prayer watch that continued nonstop for over a hundred years. 24-hour prayer every day for over a hundred years. By 1732, they sent out their first missionaries from among them. By 1742, more than 70 Moravian missionaries had been sent out of a community of no more than 600. By 1791, 65 years after commencement of that prayer vigil, the small Moravian community had sent 300 missionaries to the ends of the earth. Look, I get in our day and in our time that, that strategies are needed in church ministry. Like, there have to be some, sure. Methodologies and systems. Okay, but what if they weren't the emphasis of our ministry? They were a byproduct of fruitful ministry because of lives lived as sent ones and people so given to prayer. He goes on, verse 3, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. What we see here is that the mission of making disciples involves trust. Firstly, because it involves an element of risk. What's the picture? I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. What that reveals is the dangerous nature of the work of disciples. Jesus doesn't promise you ease. Look to these words. He sends out his followers as lambs among wolves. If you believe that if I give my life to Jesus, my life will go perfectly, you've drank the wrong Kool-Aid. Maybe that's a bad illustration to use at all. You've, you've drunk Kool-Aid, period. It's just not the Christian life. Jesus is like, I send you out as lamb, lambs among wolves. There is a sense of vulnerability in the image of lambs among wolves, but also the reality that protection comes from God himself, the good shepherd. Jim Elliott and some fellow missionaries were speared to death as, uh, shortly after their plane landed uh, among some uh, uh, tribal warriors in Ecuador. Prior to that, uh, Jim Elliott had written in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And in that same journal entry, he had written down Luke 9, verse 24, which says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, what's being said here is that in the hands and plans of the Almighty is the safest place we could ever be. Is there danger in discipleship? Yes. Is there risk? Is there vulnerability? Yes. But at the same time, you are also held in the hands of your good shepherd who is sovereign over it all. And what ultimately matters can never be taken from you. It also involves trust because it re requires a dependence on Jesus. Look at verse 4 again. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Why take nothing with them? It was a picture of the fact that disciples of Jesus are to depend on him. Why greet no one on the road? That sounds kind of rude. Well, it wasn't rude. It was because of the urgency of the task. See, Near Eastern greetings were lengthy affairs. 
And what Jesus is saying is the task is important and they aren't to get distracted. The disciple's life is to be marked by prayer and dependence. I don't think I could illustrate that in a better way than uh, talking about a man named George Mueller who was a Christian evangelist and director of Ashley Down Orphanage in the 1800s in England. In his lifetime, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. He established 117 schools which offered Christian education to over 120,000 children in his lifetime. And he wasn't a rich man. He was a man of faith. And people would look in at George Mueller and all that God was doing through him and say, oh, well, he's a special case. And George Mueller would say, no, I'm not. I just believe that God will meet my need. Don't take extra sandals. Don't take extra, don't take luggage. Don't take anything with you for the journey, but trust that I will meet your every need as you go about the journey of discipleship. Mueller would respond to his critics and say, my dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God? This way is as open to you as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord, to trust in Him with all His heart and to cast His burden upon Him and to call upon Him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this? My dear brethren in Christ, I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. What he's saying is that as I put my trust in Jesus alone, my faith was so built up because he met me in my dependence on Jesus. And I say to you the same thing that George Mueller said to his critics, will you not try this way? Will you not try this way of living as a disciple of Jesus in such a way that you're dependent on him? Lord, I'm stepping out of my comfort zone here. Would you help me? Pray to the Lord of the harvest. It goes on in verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages." Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. See, the mission of making disciples also involves responsibility. Jesus is explaining what his disciples are to do when they enter a town. They are to find a place to stay and enter it with a greeting of peace. This greeting of peace, the messenger's greeting of peace, represents God's gracious offer. And, and as we know, with sharing the gospel, God's gracious offer of, uh, can be received or rejected. If it's received, well, that, that, that greeting of peace is bestowed on that house. But if it is rejected, I want no part in God, I want no part in your message, well, of course, it comes back to the messenger. Additionally, we see that the disciple isn't to go from house to house socializing and being entertained long after what they've done their work, but is to have their needs met in a home of peace. The idea, again, is there's an urgency about their mission. that They must press on. The responsibility that the disciple has beyond prayer and trust in God is to also deliver the message of the kingdom. 
There's a responsibility that the disciple of Jesus has to do this. At the time we're reading in Luke 10, this time it was the inbreaking kingdom of God in the person of Jesus who came with power and authority, and it was evidenced through these healing ministries and these casting out demon kind of ministry going on. It was evidence that Jesus came bringing the kingdom through those things. In our time, in this side of the cross, it's what we refer to as proclaiming the gospel. Living as a gospel people, living as a follower of Jesus in a compelling way and sharing the good news that has happened and changes the lives of those who would believe. The reality is, though, many of us believe in Jesus, but we never proclaim Jesus. Why? Part of that, I'm sure, is like we feel ill-equipped. What if they ask me a hard question and I don't know the answer? I'm just going to make a fool of myself. I'm not going to honor Jesus. I just won't do it. But I think part of it is actually also that we just don't think they'll receive it. Charles Spurgeon said, one of my students came to me and said, I have been preaching now for some months and I do not think I have had a single conversion. I said to him, and do you expect that the Lord is going to bless you and save souls every time you open your mouth? No, sir, he replied. Well then, I said, that is why you don't get souls saved. If you had believed, the Lord would have given the blessing. I had caught him very nicely, Spurgeon said. But many others would have answered me in just the same way as he did. They tremblingly believe that it is possible by some strange, mysterious method that once in a hundred sermons, God might win a quarter of a soul. There's some good English sarcasm there. They have hardly enough faith to keep them standing upright in their boots. How can they expect God to bless them? I like to go to the pulpit feeling, this is God's word that I'm going to deliver in his name. It cannot return to him void. I have asked his blessing upon it, and he is bound to give it, and his purposes will be answered, whether my message is a savior of life unto life or of death unto death to those who hear it. Now, if this is how you feel, what will be the result if souls are not saved? Why, you will call special prayer meetings to seek to know why the people do not come to Christ. You will have inquiries meetings for the anxious. You will meet the people with a joyful countenance so that they may see that you are expecting a blessing. But at the same time, you will let them know that you will be grievously disappointed unless the Lord gives you conversions. Yet how is it in many places? Nobody prays much about the matter. There are no meetings for crying to God for a blessing. The minister never encourages the people to come and tell them about the works of grace in their souls. Uh, you guys should come and tell me about the works of grace in your souls. Uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, he has his reward. He gets what he asked for. He received what he expected. His master gives him his penny, but nothing else. The command is, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And here we sit with closed lips waiting for the blessing. Open your mouth, brother, sister, with a full expectation, a firm belief, and according to your faith, so shall it be unto you. See, we must also believe in the power of the message of the gospel to save sinners. 
We must trust that God can actually do it, that God actually wants to use you to share Jesus with others. And it's his great joy to use you for his purposes. In fact, it's how God has set up the church, that the church would be his witnesses, that they would proclaim him, and that people would come to know Christ. Would you believe that he actually still wants to do that? Verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The reality is the mission of making disciples also involves rejection. This text and the pattern of Jesus' ministry shows that rejection would come. There will always be those who reject the message and the messenger. Jesus is saying, despite how they hear and respond to the message of the kingdom, the kingdom of God has come nonetheless. And the reason why he says that it will be worse for that town than Sodom, which was like the most wicked of cities in the Old Testament, is because they have received the greater, well, they have heard the greater message and rejected the greater message, and the judgment upon them will be even greater. See, this reality should not stunt our witness, but should embolden it. Yes, some of the people we love and share our lives with and share Jesus with will not believe. And ultimately, that's out of our control. But we can believe and live out the gospel for all to see and hear. David Hume was an 18th century British philosopher who rejected historic Christianity. And he once met a friend hurrying along a London street and asked where he was going. The friend said he was off to hear George Whitfield preach. And Hume said, but surely you don't believe what Whitfield preaches, do you? The friend replied, no, I don't. But he does. And because Whitfield believes it so much and proclaims it so passionately and loves Jesus so beautifully, I've actually got to go see him do it. I've got to go see him preach. See, we can't control who gives their lives to Christ, but we can live attractive lives in Christ. Our business is not saving souls. Our business is being enthralled with the Savior and spending our lives making him known. Let's jump to verse 17 where it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. The mission of making disciples involves authority. I read this text, and I'll be honest with you, when I was studying, I went on a bit of a rabbit trail. And that rabbit trail was, I remembered back in the recesses here that don't get used very much, some story about preachers like holding snakes and stuff in their services. And so did the YouTube thing, I'll be honest. And I started looking and I saw this ABC News report that went down to this like little Pentecostal church uh, in the South. You need to get your people in check, by the way, um, because... They, they actually took this so literally, this, this little Pentecostal church. They were like, man, look, like Jesus says we'll, we'll, we'll have authority over snakes and serpents and scorpions. And so they get like snakes out, like 
venomous snakes and hold them and trust that God wanted, like, would not let them harm them. And so he's interviewing this pastor, and this pastor's like, yeah, we believe. I've been, I've been bit 10 times, and he shows where he, like, lost part of his finger, but God won't let them harm us, right? It's just, it's bad exegesis is what it is. It's, it's, it's not understanding the literary devices in the text of what's really being said, but they took it very literally. Supposedly 120 churches, mostly in the South, in the States, actually have snakes in their services because of the way they interpret passages like this. Again, I'm getting on the rabbit trail here. I just, I find that so fascinating. The reason that they did this report was they they had done this in-depth thing, but then they announced in the news, they're like, and three months later, um, turns out he was bit by a snake and died. Okay. That's not what this text means. Sorry, that went dark. What it means is that the snakes and the scorpions represent everything that is evil. The wickedness, the, and it's the idea of defeating the hostilities that they represent. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, there's, this, there's, there's the fall happening because a serpent was so crafty. But God says, one will come that will crush you, and that person is Jesus. And so as the disciples are being sent out, it's this representation that these hostilities and these powers that exist are going to be crushed in Jesus' name as his disciples go out and make disciples. See, these disciples come back and they're excited because the authority they experienced in Jesus overcame the power of the enemy. And Jesus steps in and says, as you went out and as you were proclaiming and with power and authority in my name, people were being healed and demons were being exercised. I saw Satan fall from the heights. The defeat is in play. The kingdom of God has come near. See, they recognize that there is an authority so powerful that demons are subject to Jesus. I wonder, do you recognize the power, dominion, and authority that Jesus has in this world? This should give us courage. And like these first disciples who came running back to Jesus with joy, it should be cause for rejoicing in us. But here's the last thing I want to say. There's something more amazing than that. And that's what Jesus makes clear in verse 20. Nevertheless, Jesus said, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, finally, the mission of making disciples involves rejoicing. This is not drudgery. This is joyful. This word rejoice is a present imperative which speaks of continual rejoicing. Continue to rejoice. See, healing diseases and casting out evil spirits is joy-inducing. The miracle of salvation is far superior. Kids, you know what the greatest miracle in the Bible is? The greatest miracle? It's every time a heart of stone God made into a heart of flesh. It's every time that God took someone who, who wasn't alive spiritually and made them alive. The greatest miracle in the scriptures is when he makes dead things live. And he does that in every single person who surrenders their life to Christ. If you have done that, you are a part of the greatest miracle that Jesus does, the true cause for rejoicing. See, in Acts chapter 2, there's these disciples that could speak in foreign tongues that they didn't previously know. And that was an amazing miracle. But that thousands of people heard and believed the gospel was the greater miracle. 
In Acts chapter 16, that God shook the earth and the jail doors sprung open was an amazing miracle. But that God shook the hearts of the jailer and his family and they came to faith in Jesus was the greater miracle. Lazarus, this man, his friend of Jesus, was raised back to life, and that was an amazing miracle. But if your name is written in heaven, Jesus says, it's the better miracle, the greater miracle, the miracle that is such cause for rejoicing that it's what fuels the mission. Not drudgery, not duty. The God of the universe sought to save a sinner, a wretch like me. He took my cold, dead heart and made it beat. He made me alive. He saved me by his grace. Can you believe it? And so off we go. You need to hear this news. And we pray as we go. And we depend on Jesus for every shortcoming, every everything we don't have in and of ourselves, we just prayerfully go and trust that God will do his work. Is your name written in heaven? There's always an invitation for you to receive Jesus, and your name is written in heaven. If your name is written in heaven, it's cause for rejoicing in the gospel and being a disciple who helps others follow him. Let's close by going back to Count Zinzendorf. Hey, guys. You tracking with Zinzendorf? All of his life, the young count would point to one experience on this tour he had at the end of his education. It was standard practice. They'd go to different galleries and museums and cities, kind of be cultured. Sounds pretty awesome. In the art museum at Dusseldorf, he encountered his savior. He saw a portrait of the thorn-crowned Jesus and read the inscription below it, and it said this, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? And Zinzendorf said to himself, I have loved him for a long time, but I've never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. Look, I just believe this morning that there are many in the room who can say, I have loved Jesus for a long time but I've never actually done anything for him. What if from now on you would do whatever he leads you to do? Alan Hirsch said, you can do more with 12 disciples than with 1,200 religious consumers. Imagine what could be done with 72. Imagine what could be done with a church on mission for Jesus, saying, lead me where you will. I'll be dependent on you and praying as I go. Hey, brother, do I find you praying? In this little guide, in uh, the kickoff section, there's a few questions. Not all of you have it. Um, You can write it in your notes if you want, whatever. But there's two opportunities there. The one is this, says salvation. Who do you desire to see come to faith in Jesus? Write down that name or names and commit to praying for them every day, praying to the Lord of the harvest. Think about it. You may not do it today. Maybe you can write them down right away. You've already been praying for them. Write down their names. Commit to praying for them every day. Maybe do it later. Ask God, who who is it, Lord, that you want to burden me for, 
in such a grand way that I will carry on laboring and praying that they would come to know Jesus. The other line where there's opportunity to write down names is in the area of discipleship, asking the question, who will you help follow Jesus this year? We all need mentors. We all need disciplers. And yet many of us get handcuffed in that, and we're not actually investing in others younger in the faith. Write down some names of people in your lives. Consider, pray, Lord, who is it that you would have me invest in? Write down two, three names. Our leadership labs this whole year are about disciple-making. We want to come alongside every month for five months, and just the helps for being a disciple-maker. We all need help in this. We all need encouragement in it, and that's the, the aim of our leadership labs this year. I'm going to invite our, our, our band to come up. I'm going to invite our prayer team to get in place. I'm going to pray, and we're going to uh, respond with the song. If you need prayer, why don't you come receive prayer? I invite you to engage what I'm saying here this morning and actually write down some names, make some commitments to pray, and let's watch as Jesus moves with power among us. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you, as you say in verse 20, there is such real cause for rejoicing in this ultimately, that you save. And so for everyone who has given their life to Jesus, what a miracle, what a grace. We praise you for that reality. And we ask, Lord, would you commission us? Would you use us powerfully in your strength to work in the lives of of those around us. We need you, Jesus. We pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, for the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In Jesus' name, amen.